you to take your Bibles and go to Acts chapter 18. Acts chapter 18. We are observing the Lord's table today. And uh, so um, we're at a transition moment between Corinth and Ephesus. Uh, and Paul takes a kind of a furlough trip, if you might want to call it that way in modern terms. We're going to look at that in verses 18 to 28 of Acts chapter 18. Let's pray and then we'll dive in. Father, I ask that you would use this this morning. Lord, help us. Spirit of God, as we look into your sword, we know you're here. We know you're working. We know that you will not let it return void. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give me confidence, not in me or in my study or in ability to speak, but only in the text. And Lord, I pray that you would give us that here a confidence not in a trust in a speaker or entertainment of a speaker, but truly in a submission to your word. And Lord, you've used donkeys to give your word. You've used running away prophets like Jonah to give your word. You've used adulterers like David, to give your word. But Lord, it is your word that is important. Lord, help us as we look into this servant, Paul, and his teammates, that we would learn lessons from this, that we could apply to our own lives and marriages and our church. Well, thank you for what you'll do as we peer into your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Acts 18, it's a transition section. I'll begin reading in verse 18 through the end of the chapter. This is what God's word says. And after this, Paul stayed many days longer and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria and with him Priscilla and Aquila. And at Senchari and with him, uh, he, he had cut his hair for he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus, and he left them there. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. And when they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail for Ephesus, from Ephesus. And when he had landed in Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next through the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. Now a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. And he was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. And he had been instructed in the way of the Lord. And being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began speaking boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. And when he wished to cross to Achaia, the brothers encouraged him and wrote to the disciples to welcome him. When he arrived, he greatly helped those who through grace had believed. 
For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. This is God's word. I've heard from other people, and I've shared with you before, uh, the little saying that uh, a growing church is always in transition, or a growing Christian is constantly in transition. And, And we don't like transition times. I don't like transition times. I'm a creature of comfort, just like you, and some people like change. I really don't. Uh, I, and um, uh, and I like routine. I like normal. Uh, and um, but when there is transition times, there's lessons to be learned. And we're at a transition time here in the Book of Acts. Uh, and it's also you can almost think, well, sometimes when, when there is a transition time, a lot of things show up, and a lot of uh, tendencies come out. Uh, A lot of, uh, you you know, someone said your walk talks and your talk talks, but your walk talks louder than your talk talks. And there's a lot of been studies that have shown that that children, and you can get this parents and be scared to death the rest of the day, that children follow typically more what their parents have modeled than what they taught or said or even what they heard from teachers. So you can put your kids in the best school and the best place and the best community and the best country and anywhere and you can tell them i mean you can like write parenting books yourself from your the front seat of your car as you're talking but if your actions don't model that they're going to follow our actions more than what we say that's really scary um and uh that but we also see that when it comes to what we see in the book of Acts. Now, in the book of Acts, we're seeing some prescriptive things and a lot of descriptive things of the outworking of the gospel through the church to advance the kingdom of Christ, beginning in Jerusalem all the way to the uttermost parts of the earth and ending in Rome in chapter 28. From, so from chapter 1 to chapter 28 of Acts, we see this progress, geographical progress of the gospel. And primarily, we see that in the latter part of the book of Acts in the missionary journeys of Paul. So in chapters, you know, 12, 13, 14, we, we, his first missionary journey, then he goes to a second missionary journey, and he's ending that second missionary journey in this section that we just read and beginning his third missionary journey. So it's a time of transition and furlough. And whenever there's a transition in a family, between jobs, in a church, maybe between leadership or structures or buildings or whatever, there's often a lot of things come out. In fact, a lot of, uh, you know, church uh, gurus have observed that often in challenge of transition for a ministry, that's when different some things happen. It's when some people that have been looking for an off ramp just kind of take off. It's also when some of the the the, the power cartels or what people may call them the church bullies that kind of that's their chance to kind of gain control. It's also when some people are like that's my chance to finally get my church back, right? And uh, and things like that. And you see some of that as there's transitions being going. Often when a missionary team is going to a field or preparing for a field or raising funds to go back some things come out in the dynamics that in the when that, that their walk talks louder than their talk but thankfully by their good example we see a description of with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila uh, in and Apollos here some wonderful examples of this ministry team during a time of transition that I think we can learn from as well So this is the time between the second and third missionary journey. So I want to point out a few principles about life in the body of Christ that might prepare us to be a good ministry team as well as a church 
and also prepare us as we celebrate the union we have in the body as we observe the Lord's table together today. Now, one of the things we've seen in this section, in this second missionary journey since Paul's gone over into Macedonia and he's been in these Gentile cities like Philippi and um, Athens and Corinth, uh, the intellectual capital, the kind of the amusement and luxury capitals, and uh, and seeing how he is adapts, and you know at Mars Hill, and then at Corinth, and the things that have happened. But we also um, uh, one of the themes that has come out is he calls these people to turn from idols to God. And so one of the cities he visits is Thessalonica, and then he visits Berea, and and of course we saw the difference in their responses there as we were going through Acts. Um, While he's in Corinth, he at least writes the letters to the church at Thessalonica. And this theme of idols, because we've gone to each of these cities, and as we put some pictures, and I've got some pictures of the ancient city of Ephesus up here, and there's a little video thing. It doesn't have much sound with it. A lot of these guys. So this is Ephesus in Paul's day. Of course, the major pinnacle point would be the temple of um, Artemis was like the main god there. Remember there were the Parthenon in, uh, with all the different gods in Corinth. Many, 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 many gods uh, back in Athens the same way uh, type of things. Uh, as you see some of these pictures. Ephesus is really the city that has the most uh, like modern day archaeology, the most preservation, the most preserved, the best place for tourists to go. Uh, and some of you could, tell, tell, could come up here and tell more about that. I've not gotten to visit that one of these days, hopefully. Uh, keep going. I think there's another one in there. Uh, there maybe it has some pictures of the uh, modern times there, and they kind of just can kind of scroll through there, let you see some of those things. But the theme of there's idols, and he's calling them to turn from idols to God. In fact, that's the, uh, the Bible class I'm teaching to school this year. We were talking about repentance this past week and how it's a change of mind that results in a change of action, and that we're turning from idols to God. And that I can either, to repent means to turn, so I'm turning from something to something, that there's a change here. And so this repentance that he tells them that, that first, that church at Thessalonica, one of the ones in this visit, how that you turn to God from idols. And that really, one Jewish commentator even said it this way, that that's really what much of the, old, the whole Bible is about. That the true God confronting our idols and showing they are not gods and he is God. And that's really a lot of the basis of Christianity is that you need to turn from idols to Jesus. And that happens initially when you become a believer. But it also continually happens every day that there's a heart of repentance, continued repentance turning from idols to God. Now, you might say, well, these ancient people that had these idols, I mean, we're so much more evolved and we're so much more, you know, we, we know so much more than those Greek philosophers. You know, we, we're, we're so much more educated than them. We figured all this out. We don't have idols anymore. D- don't don't, don't, don't kind of count yourself out. Because if you remember, and if you look from, from history and read into this, most of their idols, it wasn't about the idol per se. Their idols were kind of means to an end. You know, it was all kind of something they wanted anyway. So you got a God to help your crops, a God to help this pleasure and this war and uh, with children and fertility or romance. And you, you kind of had something that we all kind of, it was kind of an end, a me, end to a means. It was just kind of naming it. Uh, more of in an allegorical way. So idols, as one person said, they're not always bad things. 
often idols are good things that we've just turned into a God thing. It's good to love your kids. It is bad to make your kids an idol. It is good to take care of your car. It is bad to make your car an idol. It is good to work hard. It is bad to make your career an idol. It is, I mean, you go on and on and on. They're often good things that we turn into a God things. And their idols were means to an end. The things that, they're the things that we believe will give us security and joy in life, even without God. And even when we have God, we still think that the security and joy we have in life is because of those things. And then we apply that and we become, and we mix paganism with Christianity in the same way. Because we think to have joy and security in life, we have to add this to Christianity, this amusement, this comfort, this that, this entertainment, this whatever, to, to make it apart from God. And here's where the thing, becoming a Christian means turning from idols to God. Now, we're going to get this in the next week, and I've got to be careful not to um, make this too long and get on next week because I'm really excited about that riot that happens in Ephesus, which is really cool. I mean, that's like, and so anyway, but here's where I want to get. I'm gonna, I'll, I'll dabble in it next week a little bit. That, that when, when, when the gospel's preached, you know what, looks, what it looks like when awakening, when the gospel comes to a city, some people turn to it and a bunch of other people get mad. And so I'm just going to say it now, that if, if you've never had a time in your life that the truth of Christianity didn't make you mad and it confronted some of the idols in your own heart, you need to do some soul searching to see if you've really come to Jesus. Because if you can keep all the idols that you have in this life, in this American dream world, whatever, you might have and add Jesus to it there's no difference than that than you being like the ones in Athens that have all these gods and then we'll put one extra one up for Jesus the one or the one we don't know because because coming to Jesus and becoming a Christian is not adding a statue of Jesus in the Parthenon of your heart it is tearing the whole Parthenon of your heart down and putting Jesus in its place each of us have a Parthenon in our heart and each of us have idols in it and coming to Jesus means tearing it down and putting Jesus on the throne. He is Lord. And so if you notice that, 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 that verse in the first chapter of, of Thessalonians is how that you turn from idols to God. How do you, and actually the text says that you turn to God from idols. That the first part is turning to God. And, you know, separation, whether that means standards of dress or listening or deportment or whatever, is off, often we often focus on the negative and not the positive. Oh, you mean you're not going to go out to eat and get the, 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 the $40 steak? Oh, you're not going to get that. But you're like, no, but I am going to get interest in my emergency fund because I'm not spending extra money. You know what I mean? So you're thinking I'm getting going to, not from. I'm giving up to go to or whatever it is. You know, oh, you're not getting that. You're getting this. So sometimes we, we often forget that it's coming to God from, I, oh, I got to give up. I was going to be a this and I was going to have that, but I had to give it up to serve God. No, you're coming to God. And we're always thinking what we get. So you know what you get in the gospel? is you turn to God. You get God. And, and we mess that up. In fact, a lot of times, uh, and I'm guilty of this, we will present the gospel as a way to get to heaven. Now, is the gospel in a relationship with Jesus a way to get to heaven? Yes. But is that, is that what you get? No. First Peter, several passages. What you get in the gospel. The gospel is a way to get to God. To God I'm reconciled, as we sung earlier. And, and heaven is just an awesome side benefit. 
But if you don't want to be to God, then you're not even going to like heaven. And so chapter 18, verse 23, going all the way to chapter 21, which will take us a couple weeks to get to uh, next week. And then the week after that, Josh is going to be preaching for us. Uh, I have to be at a wedding. And, and But this is his third missionary journey, and it centers on Ephesus. This is kind of the main cities, three years there. And then there's also in verse 28 here this parenthetical comment about this guy named Apollos. I like his name. Uh, it's really cool, but there's some principles here I want to observe. So the first one I want to observe is this ministry team. So Paul leaves in verse um, 19. He leaves Priscilla and Aquila to begin this ministry. He takes leave of them so that he goes from there to Jerusalem, to Caesarea, to Jerusalem, and then to Antioch. Now, when it says that he went up to and then down to Antioch, remember, that's not how we look at the map and think down is always south and north is always up, right? Um, No, because of the elevation of Jerusalem being high, you always went up to Jerusalem and down anywhere else. So even though he was going north to Antioch from Jerusalem, that's why the text says he went down to Antioch. Um, and so, but we, we were introduced to Priscilla and Aquila last week. I remember, remember that Priscilla's name is mentioned first, which means, which was odd that the wife would be mentioned before the husband, but it probably means that she was of a higher social status or even in, in industry, in their profession, she was of a higher status than her husband, and that's totally okay. Um, but what this shows for us is the importance of co-laborers and lay leaders in ministry. And we introduced to them that they are um, tent makers or leather workers. And this was a trade. All Jewish fathers taught their sons a trade. And uh, Paul's trade was tent making. And he shared that with them. In fact, and then he used that because he didn't want to expect financial support from those he was evangelizing. So when he went somewhere to plant a church or do evangelism, he did tent making so that he didn't evangelize people and take offerings from them at the same time. But then the churches that were established would send offerings to support, and that's why we saw that last time, that after uh, Silas and Timothy come and they bring the gift from the other churches, he is able to be occupied with preaching full time. And so, and so he's discouraged. Last time we saw the, the, this vision that came to Paul, the presence, protection, and predestination there. But Priscilla and Aquila are named there for us. And this is an important thing for us to get, how key they were. And, and, and Paul mentioned them in a couple other places in, in Corinthian, letter to the Corinthians, uh, in chapter 16, I believe it is, that he talks about how uh, they met in their house. In Romans, he talks about how they risked their necks for him and how they're dear to him. This is so important for us to get. So what are Priscilla and Aquila doing in Ephesus? They're establishing their, their business, but they're also, the church meets in their house, and so they're kind of a transient couple, but they're business people. And here's where I want you to get this. Those of you in the business world and the secular, have secular jobs, that often, often, the tip of the spear of a gospel advance and evangelism is not through church planters and missionaries and pastors, but through business people. And we need to change our mindset because we often have this mindset that the people that do ministry are the ones that get paid to work at a church or something like that. And we even say, well, that's so-and-so's church and they built this church and they built that. The job of elders and shepherds and teachers is not to fill the pews, but to fill the pulpit and teach the word. 
It is, it is to preach the word, to equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. They're, they're a saint, so they're doing ministry too. We're all involved in it and to lead by example. But it's a team sport. Church is a team sport. It's not a spectator thing as we talked about in our, uh, uh, when it comes to worship. And so the point, of, there's a mindset shift I want you to think about. What if the point of your job is not just about you providing an income for you and retirement and health care. What if the point of your job, God put you there for evangelistic purposes? What if he put you there to be a restraining part of evil in this community? What if he put you there for that? And I believe he has. I think he always uses that calling, the vocations he put on us. And let's get this, that church ministry is a team thing and we can't have a spectator mentality about it and that behind the scenes i mean if you look at the you name any ministry that you're like oh wow that's a great ministry they're really doing a work for god or whatever behind almost all of them will be a small army of dedicated often lay people servants volunteers really kind of rolling up their sleeves and partnering and working and committed to seeing people saved, seeing ministries run, seeing things happen. Um, Businessmen who get a burden to uh, facilitate a message getting out. Um, Steve Lawson has observed often that some of the best preachers he's ever heard are these guys in no-name churches in rural up-in-the-sticks places, and they're just as quality of preachers as some of the radio preachers you might hear. And you know often what the difference is? What, what made this person get on the air and that person not or whatever? And often there, if, if you think of, if, I've heard stories of this, that there was a businessman in their church that said, hey, I want to get your stuff on this radio station and I'm going to pay for it. And that's why, if you could look at that, how you got certain editions of the Greek text um, that, that, that was through, that, how it became so popular during the Renaissance was because there were folks that funded it, or why certain books and ideas or study Bibles that took this nation by storm and changed the movement or changed the thinking was often because there was someone, there was like a, a group somewhere that's like, we're going to fund this study Bible, this booklet, this pamphlet, this tract, this website, this this, uh, this movie about the Jesus story, or this Gideon Bible thing and businessmen often going to do that and God uses it to advance the kingdom and so see your job as a calling that God may have put you there for such a time as this and it might not just be about providing means and things so they have a ministry heart they have a team of ministers secondly a point I want to point out is the ministry mindset of Paul here and of Aquila and Priscilla or Priscilla and Aquila. Verse 18 to 21, this is an interesting thing and a lot of people kind of skip over this and I kind of wanted to as well because it's like, okay, a guy goes and gets a haircut. What's the big deal? Happens all the time. Paul goes and gets a haircut um, or depends on how it's shaved his head, gets a crew cut. I remember when I was a kid, my grandpa always took me to this barber shop in Lost Creek and I think I was probably 12 years old before I knew there were other styles besides flat tops. You know, it was like you always had a flat top. And that's all, the only thing the guy gave was flat tops. And, um, and um, so Paul goes and gets a haircut. But, so what's the significance of that? And I think because Luke thought it was important enough to write it in the book of Acts, and the Holy Spirit thought it was important enough, so what, what might be there? So um, a lot of people think that he said, it says that he, it was the end of a vow, 
he had. He landed, uh, he went, went down to Antioch, I'm sorry, go back. Um, um, he declined. Uh, he had his hair, hair cut because of a vow. Um, he cut his hair for he was under a vow in verse 18. And then it goes on to tell us how it has. So uh, most people believe that this was probably the end of a Nazarite vow that Paul had taken. Now, the Nazarite vow, you can read about that in Numbers chapter 6. And of course, you know different Nazarites, um, John the Baptist, Samson, others, uh, Christ, uh, took a Nazarite vow. Uh, Numbers chapter 6, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 21 there, you can read about the Nazarite vow. But a Nazarite vow was a temporary vow that had three provisions that had to be done. One, and, and so you can think about these provisions that they had to vow. They had to vow to not to abstain from anything made with grapes. So total abstinence from wine, teetotalers. They were secondly to not touch a dead body. That was the big deal that Samson violated. Not to touch a dead body. And thirdly, they were to let their hair grow. Now, the person was free to choose the length of time that they were under that Nazarite vow. But at the end of that time, they had to return to the temple and make an offering, a peace offering, a sin offering, a burnt offering. And that part of that offering, they would shave their head and burn the hair with the offering. So it wasn't like, you know, locks of love or anything like that. It was burnt, you know, burn the hair. Um, well, during the dispersion, when the Jews are scattered and all the stuff going on here in the uh, Roman Empire, they modified the rule. The rabbis modified the rule that didn't require them to return to Jerusalem to do this, but they could conclude or end their vow wherever they were at their convenience, but then they were to, as soon as possible, in a timely manner, bring that cut hair to Jerusalem and have it burnt as part of an offering. So that makes sense that Paul, he needs to go, he has his hair cut, and then he has to go to Jerusalem. Most people believe that's probably what Paul's doing in this section. And Luke, Luke took the time to give this minor detail, four whole verses in this chapter. So why? couple options, and, and you can uh, consider this, that Luke is stressing that Paul remained a faithful Jew through his life. That, that, that Paul is, is showing that he's still being rooted to his heritage, his Jewish heritage, and, that, and it kind of underlines for us that Christianity is not a new religion, but a fulfillment of Judaism that has, was centuries old. It's not some new Johnny-come-lately religion that Paul just cooked up himself. It was also probably a sign of solidarity to those Jewish Christians back in Jerusalem. We've seen that controversy over and over, going back to chapter 15 in the Jerusalem Council and things with Peter and the other ones there and James especially, and especially this problem they had in Galatia with Titus and whether he should be circumcised or not and all this stuff going on. So it's a show of solidarity to these converted Jews, him showing appreciation for his heritage, to maybe to keep at bay some of the suspicions that he was totally separating Christianity from its Jewish roots. Either way, it's a show of deference and um, gentleness and a ministry mindset of Paul. And that's a good lesson for us. Um, that you don't have to turn the whole world upside down to tell people you're doing something a little different. 
Um, you don't have to throw out all the hymns if you're going to have a new song. You don't have to, you know, you know what I mean? You don't have to burn all the pews, you know, um, and, and brag that you're not grandma's church. Well, where's grandma supposed to go to church now? Um, and um, I think there's a good lesson there for us of being gracious there. There's a, so it's a good ministry mindset of Paul. There's also a ministry mindset of Priscilla and Aquila. And I want to I notice this. So this guy named Apollos comes from Alexandria. And he is preaching eloquently, mighty in the scriptures. He's, he's fervent, so he's passionate. He has, he has an eloquence and a winsomeness about him. And he's, I mean, he's known as being this great orator. And we see that one in the book in 1 Corinthians, how some of you are of Paul, some of Apollo, some of you, know, he goes later on there. But this is more kind of introduced to him in this transition time. And Apollos comes and he's preaching. And he's preaching about Jesus, so he's got that part. But what he doesn't know, he only knows the, bapti- the baptism of John the Baptist. So he's talking about repentance from sin and baptism of repentance not the baptism of the spirit and that which would follow after Christ and he so he's not knowing about the the resurrection of Jesus the ascension of Jesus he hasn't been brought up to speed on that and so he's preaching and he's persuading and so what do you do when there's someone preaching the same gospel in a little bit different way how do you respond to that and so um if this might have been modern times and this might have been certain types of ministries Aquila and Priscilla would have like you know um uh, hosted a website to uh to um, showing and and displaying for everybody the problems the theological inaccuracies of Apollos and make sure that that's published and broadcast everywhere so that everybody knows that this guy that's preaching is just doing it wrong. But they don't do that. They graciously take him to their home. And in that private setting, they explain to him more accurately the gospel. They take the time and do it. Now, here's another side point. Priscilla's there, the one teaching him. So this woman is teaching this preacher. Dun, dun, dun. I have learned so much from some wonderful women. I have been taught the Bible in many ways. In fact, when we went through Esther a couple summers ago, my favorite commentary that I used the most was written by a woman. <gasps> Doesn't that violate what Paul said in Timothy, that he wouldn't have a woman to teach And I think the difference is, it's in a small group setting. It's in a Sunday school class. It's in their living room. They're talking and dialoguing. So ladies, when you're in small group, when you're in Sunday school class, and you have something to say, say it. Like, that's okay. and, And I think that's something that's very similar here. So it's very timely and discreetly they instruct Apollos. So it shows something about Apollos' humility. And this is another point I was going to make, but I'll go ahead and make it here. Apollos, mighty in the scriptures, very well educated, from Alexandria. I mean, this is the intellectual capital. Uh, some people speculate that he may have um, um, uh, had more of an allegorical approach to interpretation because that was very predominant in Alexandria, which was a problem. Um, and uh, but at the same time, it, mighty in scriptures, meaning he knew the Old Testament extremely well. In fact, Martin Luther even suggested that Apollos may be the human author of the book of Hebrews. I don't know. Um, but, um, 
But Apollos, who is this mighty in the scripture, well-educated, I mean, this is the guy coming from Harvard with a PhD, and he's going to come into your living room, and he, you're going to instruct him more accurately the theology. And, he, and here's the thing. He has the humility to sit and listen and take it and have this couple instruct him. And so I ask you, are you teachable? No, and if someone might not be using the words that you like, or they're not using the theological jargon, or whatever, that he is able to, able to do this. Uh, and if you, it also shows, Apollos, that if you have ability in logic or debate, that you don't have to turn off your brain to turn to Jesus. God can use all of that as he did with Apollos. He loved the Bible, yet he responds to Priscilla and Aquila and shows that he is still humble. So even if someone doesn't get it and understand theology the way you think it ought to be understood or quote the same preachers or commentators that you like that have a humility about you like Apollos did here. You know what? The wisest man on this earth that I have known and who's my hero, he's in heaven now, was my grandpa Macaulay, first name Draper, named my son after him. Um, Eighth grade education, coal miner, Barber County. Um, my, pro- my, my pap probably didn't know what the word expository preaching is or the f- theory behind ex- expositional preaching. He probably couldn't even spell that word. But when I was saying I wanted to be a, a, a preacher and called to it, I remember sometimes he was just like, you make sure, and his phrase was, you always take a text. You always take a text. Don't get up and don't take a text. You always take a text. And he didn't know how to the whole stick to the book and Bible-centered, and he didn't know how to word that, but that was some of the best wisdom. And you know what? Sometimes I still, and I'm starting to prepare a sermon, it's like, take a text, take a text. And I hear my grandpa saying it that way. And because that, that's what it's about. So you don't get beyond that. Some of that wisdom you can learn from anyone in this, and that's why I love that this ministry mindset of Aquila and Priscilla, that they're discreet. They're not like out like, watch out for Apollo, he's a heretic, he don't have it right, you know. Uh, they, they teach him. I love that spirit. But also, and this is a principle for us to learn of ministry of, recon, of revitalization. Verse 23. And after spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next, the region of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all the disciples. So he goes back to the church of Antioch. We saw that, see that there in verse 22. Remember, that's the sending church, the sponsoring church. That's their home church. They go back to base. They report. They're connected. They're submitted to. They're sent out of the local church. The word sent, 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 sent. Over and over in Acts, they're sent from local churches. And so they go, he goes back to report. But then he goes back. And if you were going to trace where he goes, regions of Galatia and Pergia, strengthening all disciples, this is almost a parallel from the route he took on his first missionary journey journey in chapters 12 through 14 where he went and the churches he planted so Paul is concerned about his converts and the spiritual health and continual growth of those churches he it's a follow-up of strengthening remember Paul and Barnabas were sent out from the church at Antioch Paul returns to this sponsoring church we've seen that theme often this gives us a picture of of what Paul considered to be the elements of gospel ministry. Now get this, church. This gospel ministry of Paul throughout the book of Acts, in things, there are certain things that we, oh yeah, that's part of what gospel advances and gospel ministry and things. Things like evangelism and discipleship. Things like church planting. Deeds of love, mercy ministries, acts of justice. Yes. 
developing leaders and deploying them to be involved and raising up leaders in the church and spreading them out, Acts 6, and later on as they're appointing elders in the cities. But another element that is crucial to the gospel ministry that Paul observes is the revitalization of established churches. This is the second time we've seen this, that he's gone to this place, strengthening these churches. One author said it this way, that the Great Commission work of the Apostle Paul was not just a ministry to unreached places and people, but also a ministry of revitalization. Church revitalization is just as much a part of the call of the Great Commission as church planting. They both are important. It's not either or, it's both and. And so church, being a part of a church revitalization is pioneering, is radical, is gospel-centered, is Great Commission, is missional. Give yourself to it. We know that some of these churches in Galatia and Thessalonica and these Pergia and these regions were struggling with, with some intense doctrinal problems, with, with some sin problems like in Corinth, I mean, some, some bad stuff. I mean, these were messed up churches. Well, just write them off and wait till they die? No. Paul goes back to strengthen them. Um, a major part of Paul's ministry is devoted to bringing declining churches there's one book that I love on church vitalization says, From Embers to Flames. Take those coals that are almost burnt out and bring them back to a full-blown bonfire. That'd be great to see God do that. Now, I also want to encourage you a little bit by commiserating here, Okay. <laughs> That if some of the churches that the Apostle Paul planted himself needed to be revitalized and strengthened within only a few years, how much more should we not be surprised that there are churches all over this town and this country that need to be revitalized? I mean, if even the churches that Paul planted within a few short years needed to be revitalized, how much more do churches that are 78 years old need to be revitalized? One other principle of this, in this transition I want to point out is this ministry couple, this gospel-centered marriage of Priscilla and Aquila. You know, some couples just know how to make the most out of life. And you see certain couples, and you're like, man, they, that's, I want to be like that when we're old. I want to be like that when we're in our 70s. I want to be like that couple. And, man, they have fun together. They've done this together. Um... And one of the key things, and we see that in Priscilla and Aquila. We saw that last week. We're seeing that here. see that in Romans. You see that in Corinthians. This kind of the first ministry power couple here, this, this husband and wife team. And someone said this, that in an age when the focus is mostly on what happens between a husband and wife, Aquila and Priscilla are an example of what could happen through a husband and wife. 
And, and, and so I say this as some knowing and undergirding, and don't get me wrong, you need to focus on your marriage. You need to spend time with your marriage, and you need to, uh, that needs to be a focus. That needs to be part of small groups and Sunday school studies, and there needs to be ministry. But we can't always be on the receiving end of ministry and what's going on in our marriage and how's our marriage. What if part of the goal of your marriage was for you to minister together? I mean, you have a common goal, common work, common thing here that they do. What could God do through your marriage, not just what's going on between you and your spouse, that their effectiveness together, the fact that they are an effective ministry couple shows a lot about their relationship to one another. Because in order to do something effective together, you kind of have to get along. So a goal of marriage... I want you to think about this. A goal of marriage is ministry effectiveness together. So I want you to think about that. How can you serve God together? Now, there are certain times that, you know, you're not going to serve God together. One's going to be in this ministry. One's going to do that ministry, giftedness, timing, seasons in life, things like that. But there, it's also wonderful to be able to serve God together doing a VBS class together or working in Awana together or doing something together um, is an important thing. So if you're single and you say, well, how do I know if I'm supposed to get married or stay single for the glory of God? I mean, here's this person I like. I want to serve God. I get along with them. You know, she's really cute. She has big brown eyes. You know, um, how do I know this? I mean, a great question is, could you serve God better with her or without her? Could you serve God better single or as a married couple? And that really changes a lot. That one of the goals of marriage is to be more effective in ministry together. And it's not all about careers, and not the, but serving Jesus together. So is your marriage ministry-minded like Priscilla and Aquila's? Is your marriage a ministry team? You know, something that kind of bothers me is when I hear people say, well, we couldn't come to church because we needed to spend family time together. We needed to focus on family. Well, what would you do for your family time? Oh, we went to the movies. Okay, so you went in a room. Well, they turned the lights down. You sat on separate chairs and watched something else without talking for two hours. And that was more family time than coming and sitting in a pew together where you can put your arm around her a little easier, hold her hand. You can sing songs together. You can take notes together. You can hold hands and share a hymnal together, and you could serve together. Which would be more good family time? Um, you say, well, I have an unsaved spouse. You can still have a ministry mindset in your marriage. That is part of your ministry of your marriage, is living a life uh, that would bear fruit of the gospel and when opportunities come, speaking to the gospel. But one of the thing, the chief means that Priscilla and Aquila use in their evangelism and their discipleship, and I want you to get this, church, is their house. The table that you have in your house, whether that be your kitchen table or dining room table, can be a sacred tool of ministry. Um. I mean, Martin Luther and Katie are a great example of their table talks, inviting people over and feeding them and talking theology, and as good Germans having beer and theology together um, around the table. 
talking around the table. We see this with them, that the, the Christian home is still one of the best tools for spreading the gospel. So to do guests find Christ in your home, I mean, your neighbor, I mean, this is a tool that you have in your home, and hospitality is a great means of evangelism um, and that we could use. And so a growing church is always in transitions, and how we model in transitions shows important principles about this. And so here are just a few, and without getting into what happens in Ephesus in chapter 19, as we prepare for the Lord's table, I just want us to think that here's how the body of Christ is functioning, that they're a team, that they're working together. Paul, Priscilla, Aquila, Apollos, educated, mighty in the scriptures, but humble to sit in their living room and talk to them of that and be instructed by them. This is this one anothering going on. Also, Paul's deference to the Jews, to, uh, to not what, what he wants or exert his own liberties, but to want to limit his liberties to expand his ministry to others in his hair and taking that time away. And, I, and, and you notice something here as we've gone through these different cities that where Paul was able to build a team of ministry, he lasted longer. So they have this team in Corinth, and he's there 18 months. They have this team in Ephesus, and he's there three years. That, that longevity and effectiveness and long-term effectiveness in ministry is not going to be about one person's ability to preach well, but about a church's ability to love and serve and minister together well. And we see that. And especially we unite that, that what brings us together in Christ and with each other is the means, the bread of life that's broken for us that we're about to remember through the bread and the cup. And so hopefully we can learn lessons from this short transition section in Acts. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for these examples, Lord. And I pray that you'd give us marriages like Priscilla and Aquila's. I pray that you would give us humility like Apollos. I pray that you'd give us a ministry heart of deference of our own liberties like Paul. Lord, I pray that you'd give us love for one another and strength to just encourage one another and uh, defer to one another and minister to one another. Would you give us a heart to reach the nations? And Lord, as we've seen this emphasis of Paul of revitalizing established churches, strengthening these churches, Lord. Would you give us a heart to see that done? Would you be so kind to do that for us here, Lord? We pray in Jesus' name. And Lord, I pray that you would help us now as we remember you through the bread and the cup. We pray in Christ's name, amen.